0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Trump administration hopes state and local law enforcement will do more to enforce immigration laws. In a memo signed this week, the head of Homeland Security calls for the expansion of a program that trains cops to act as immigration officers. To quote, investigate, identify, apprehend, arrest, detain and conduct searches. Engaging the state patrol would require Governor John Hickenlooper's approval. In our regular conversation at the state capitol, we
1: asked the governor
0: what he'd do if the patrol wanted to participate.
1: Let me say I've talked to the state patrol, I've talked to the Department of Public Safety, and that is not their inclination. <laughs> they have their own priorities, and the federal government's not offering any funding for this. So this is would be taking people away from state priorities to do what's essentially a federal mandate. What do you base that assertion on that they wouldn't provide money? Well, that generally, when the federal government makes, puts out a memo like this, they say the funding will be from ABC. That funding would almost certainly have to come through Congress. And obviously, I think what's being discussed now is the, the lack of any funding or any statement of support implies that there's not going to be any. They don't think they could get it through Congress. So you've had specific conversations about what's
0: known as the 287G program right. with the head of the state patrol?
1: I've talked to the head of public safety who's talked to the head of state patrol. Okay. And there does not seem to be interest uh, in yeah, this I mean, immediately. I mean, right now, we've been trying to figure out a way in our budget. To, we want to add another 20 or 30 state patrol officers, right? Just to do the traffic safety, to do the, you know, all the priorities that they already have. I mean, we're already caught between a rock and a hard place in terms of how to budget for our own pressing needs. Here's a case where the federal government comes in and says they want us to start going door to door and collecting people, taking them out of their homes. You know, something that in many senses, some people think would make our ability to keep communities safe more difficult. Let me
0: say the memos are not as explicit as saying that these agents would knock on doors and arrest people.
1: Well, but we certainly don't know what they intend these agents to be doing. If it's looking for violent criminals, we're already doing that. So what specifically do they want us to do beyond that? Just some history here. This program had bipartisan support in
0: Colorado about a decade ago, but went out of favor here. El Paso County was the last in Colorado to bow out in 2015. But what of local departments? So if a county sheriff's office or if a city or town's police force were interested in pursuing this
1: deputizing, would you stop them? Well, A, in the way our system works, I don't have the power to stop them. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I think it's a good idea? Probably not. I mean, they're going to have to, you know, try and make that decision. Does it make their community safer? And, you know, when you run a big city police department, a big part of public safety is that relationship between the, the police force and the community they're trying to protect and the creation of a sense of trust. And however you look at this, it's hard to imagine you're going to improve the trust relationship between the community and the police force if you're going into people's homes and taking people out solely because they're undocumented. Now, let me be very clear. When undocumented individuals go out and and rob a store, create a, a violent crime, or part of a gang, we are the first to say they should be arrested I think every police chief in the state would support that and and, and turn them immediately over to ICE so that they can uh, go through the deportation process. That makes a lot. No, No one's arguing with that. Though I think there is some argument that that doesn't happen as often as it could. And I think that's fair, right? If you've got violent criminals who happen to be undocumented, we should be much more effective in making sure they are arrested, detained, processed, and deported. If they really committed violent crimes... They should be the priority in terms of any kind of a deportation process.
0: You have heard from constituents across the political spectrum on the immigration issue. We reviewed comments that came into your governor's website, people who'd okayed them to be public. Jody Hankins in Pueblo County wrote in December, I support President-elect Donald Trump and his efforts to protect American citizens. I do not support sanctuary cities and ignorance towards immigrants. On the other side, Alice Gustafson wrote into your website from Garfield County to say, Governor Cuomo has taken a bold step in declaring New York a safe zone for all people. Doing so in Colorado would alleviate some fears and help deter any hateful reactions by a citizen. I'm just curious, how often when
1: there are calls and emails from constituents, do you actually see them? Well, I, there are so many on this issue, so many that come in, uh, but we do keep a record of them all and kind of sum them up of how many people are for it, how many people are against it. So you get a digest, or yeah, there's a log that, that that is done on a daily basis, and I do look at that log. However, I think it's worth pointing out that you know in something like this where there is so much emotional energy and and so much divisive rhetoric, sometimes that blocks possible compromises and solutions. One solution, I would suggest, maybe the time is right now for Congress finally to step up under this new heightened awareness and say, all right, what are the compromises so we can finally resolve this immigration problem that's been going on for over 20 years now? Obviously, securing the border is a part of that. I'm not sure a wall is the most cost-effective way of doing that. Uh, But why don't we have a national ID system that works? Why can't we hold businesses accountable, maybe increase the penalties if they're hiring people undocumented? You know, look at the industries where we can't find sufficient workers even now with undocumented workers in the mix. So agriculture is a big example of that. Construction. You talk to people in town and they're offering construction workers, you know, third year you could be making $60,000 a year and they can't find enough people that'll come every day and show up and work hard. This is an issue that sooner or later, Congress has to step up and say, all right, how many work permits do we need in these different industries? And how do we make sure that we're not holding back the economic growth of our country, the job creation that would naturally occur if we weren't impeding it? Do you uh, ever find yourself being swayed
0: on a particular policy, given the, the emails or how they're breaking on a
1: particular issue? I try to keep an awareness of public sentiment uh, on all these difficult issues, because in a funny way, you you, you don't want to get too far out ahead of public sentiment. Even if you're on what you believe in your heart and soul is the is the right direction. Abraham Lincoln said, it, "He said, with public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed." But you have to balance how an issue is evolving to figure out exactly when when you can have the best effect. Otherwise. Could that be called spinelessness? You know, that, that you don't
0: take the lead. Certainly, certainly, Lincoln was called spineless frequently. Even in the Capitol, you have widely differing views on immigration. A Republican bill would punish cities and even particular public officials who create sanctuary jurisdictions, and a Democratic bill would limit how law enforcement resources can be used for immigration enforcement. Is legislative action at the state level required in your mind, or do you see this purely now as a federal issue? Well, I've always
1: seen it largely as a federal issue, and I think, I mean, this nation is... So is that just, is that just political maneuvering as you see it on lawmakers' no, no, I behalf? Think it, no, I think it can have a, a role, but I think it's primarily a federal issue.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. I'd like to focus on energy now. You wrote a letter asking President Trump for more federal funding of clean energy. And later this week, you head to Washington for the National Governors Association meeting. Um, You told us that you expect a visit with President Trump for the first time there. What's the top thing you plan to raise? Is it energy? Is it something else?
1: Well, again, that all depends on the context of where and, and how our discussion unfolds. But certainly issues that... Uh, I would expect he would bring up and that I would want to at least make sure he understood our side of it would be immigration, would be clean energy, and, and you know how the, kind of all of the above stance on, on energy really pays dividends long term. I would talk to him about health care. There are now five or six or seven Republican governors that are saying, hey, we expanded Medicaid uh, based on a, a social contract with the federal government. Don't pull the rug out from under us because we're finally getting a higher percentage of people with good, basic health care. Is your sense that you'll have one-on-one time with President Trump? Well, I, think, I doubt that. I, that's why I'm saying it depends on the context mm-hmm. in which I talk to him. But I think the, it's a, generally a fair assumption that as a, you know, not a Republican, that I won't be seated next to him and I probably won't have even a minute of conversation time. On the energy question, methane is one
0: of the byproducts of oil and gas development, and it contributes to climate change. The Obama administration tried to cut methane emissions from drilling on public lands by requiring companies to look for and fix leaks in their equipment. That effort was based on rules Colorado adopted in 2014. Now, Republican leaders in Congress are working to repeal the federal rule. The U.S. Senate's going to vote soon. Republicans and some industry groups argue the methane rules amount to bureaucratic red tape. that They hurt
1: business. What have you heard from business leaders in Colorado about the rules here? It depends on who you talk to. If you talk to any of the larger operators, the people that drill a lot of wells, are recovering a large amount of oil and, and dealing with a lot of methane, I think almost without exception, they say to me and publicly, uh, that these methane regulations were a good thing, that they actually improved the social contract between the oil and gas industry and the public, that uh, they are definitely having a material benefit on the quality of air in Colorado.
0: But the smaller operators are struggling to meet it, do you think?
1: Uh, I'm not so much sure it's that so much as they resent the, the imposition of another set of rules and regulations, and they're tired of that. what they perceive as a constant you know, sequence, one after another, higher hurdles for them to get over in running their businesses. It is worth pointing out that the cost of the methane regulations has come down every single year. So originally they were saying that it was going to be $60 million a year to, and again, remember, this is a multi, multi, multi multi-billion dollar, tens of billions of dollar industry in Colorado. So $60 million, while a lot of money is not the end of the world, the large operators that were paying the vast majority of that have dramatically reduced the cost. In other words, they found innovations so they can harvest that methane, reuse it, and, and get back some of their costs of doing so much more quickly than we originally thought. So some estimates are as low as there's $20 million a year and it's going to keep going lower. So... I think by almost any measure, the methane rules have been a success. And so do you hope to sway, say, U.S. Senator
0: Cory Gardner, Republican from Colorado, on this issue, given the upcoming vote? Have you spoken with
1: him about this? Yes, I have. And what have you told him? He could be a key swing vote. Well, I've given him my opinion. Uh, Senator Gardner, I talk to him every couple of weeks. And he gives me his opinion. I give him my opinion. Does you know, he seem to be um, vacillating on this question? Or do I you think he's made va- up his I mind? I would say vacillating. <laughs> I, th- I think he's collecting the information and, and trying to figure out what is a – you know, it's a difficult question. Given that there's a new Secretary of the Interior who's going to be perhaps – more cautious about where to and how much to impose methane regulations on public lands, wouldn't it make sense to go and change these rules through the normal rulemaking process rather than to exercise what some people view as a nuclear option, right? Oh. This so in this case, CRA. It's, it's, re- it's really the methodology. CRA, the Congressional Review Act— so th- that there
0: is a question of whether he thinks the Senate is the right place to do this or it should just happen administratively.
1: Yes, but if they use the, the CRA, uh, this Congressional Review, what it means is that the Department of the Interior can never add any regulations on any of these areas without going through Congress. And as we all know, Congress is hard to get anything through in, in most cases. The state sued
0: Boulder County last week over its temporary moratorium on oil and gas drilling, which it has repeatedly extended. Boulder County insists its moratorium does not violate the law. The suit came from the state attorney general, Cynthia Kaufman, who said, quoting, The Colorado Supreme Court has made clear that local governments do not have the authority to ban oil and gas development. Did you consult with her before she sued? Or did uh, she
1: consult with you? We were aware that she was filing suit. You sir. were. And do you think that she made the right choice? Well, I think that there's, uh, Boulder is going to have a new set of rules, hopefully in the next several weeks. And our hope is that those rules are going to be able to both respect and reflect the, the state constitution and people's private property rights, but also uh, provide uh, more protection or more interchange between the industry and you know surface property owners. So do I hear you saying that she might have jumped the gun on this? It
0: sounds like you're very confident Boulder will come up with those rules as opposed to continuing the moratorium.
1: Yeah. I mean, Boulder has, has said to us that they're very close to getting these rules. Uh, we haven't seen the rules. So again, the first question is, do they get those rules in the next few weeks? So they have gone past that five-year deadline, but if they really deliver the new rules, is it worth a lawsuit? Then the next question is going to be, do those rules conform with what's in our state constitution? So do you think she was
0: premature in filing the suit?
1: Again, I'm not going to tell the attorney general how to do her job. I think that I'm somebody who, when I was in the private sector, I never sued anybody, and I was never sued. I tried to work everything out. I think when you go into court, you you spend a lot of money, and I'm not sure you always get a better outcome.
0: Boulder County commissioners say there's a really a bigger problem here, and that's relations between the industry and some local governments. Here's Commissioner Elise Jones.
2: The state has not yet solved the problem, and that's one of the reasons we're in the state that we're in right now.
0: Your oil and gas task force produced new rules in 2016 to address this friction and give more local control. Uh, We reported this month on the first two communities to test these rules. One's in Weld County, the other on the West Slope. Groups of citizens in each say that the rules don't reflect common sense, since they still allow companies to drill within 500 feet of their homes with dozens of wells on a single pad. Uh, The rules have made companies do more to limit noise, dust, lights, monitor air and water quality, but accidents still happen. Uh, After hearing our reports... I wonder how you feel about these large developments, what some citizens say is industrial-scale activity in their neighborhoods.
1: Well, these wells are drilled. Nowadays, what used to take six months is drilled in six days. So the wells are drilled very rapidly, one after another. And by putting them on one pad, you may have several months of you know, industrial activity, but you're not having it spread all over the county. And that was the original idea behind using directional drilling to, from a single pad, be able to drill you know, a couple square miles worth of area without having to you know, be in, in, in conflict with more housings. And yet, for those who live next to or near that pad with so much activity going on, they're seeing it as concentrated and injurious. And again, and that's, this is the place where I think local government can step in and should have a voice. If they say, we'd like you to have more pads, I think most oil and gas companies are going to say, all right, if you want us to do more pads, it doesn't cost much money to do a pad, we'll do more pads. But does that really make sense for their community to have more people subjected to more noise and and dust and commotion? Uh, Or is it better to go as quickly as you can in one place and, and get that noise over in a matter of a few months? So do you think there should be
0: more limits on large-scale oil and gas facilities that go into a neighborhood,
1: or do you think the state has struck the right balance here? I think the circumstance here is they don't want those wells drilled at all. It's not a question of... It's a good thing to argue against how many are on a pad, but they're not saying they want those wells distributed on many smaller pads. They're saying, we don't want those wells. So no matter what choice the
0: driller makes it sounds to me like the friction between local governments and the industry is not really being eased, even in light of the new rules.
1: Right. And and we are at the same place where I think on your show for several years we've been talking about, in our constitution, this is someone's private property, these, these mineral leases. So if we really feel as a community that this is so injurious to our neighbors, then we should do what we do with transmission lines. We we should use eminent domain. There's a whole legal process. That doesn't appear to be something that Boulder or Broomfield is willing to come up with, to come out of their pockets to pay for this private property that they want to take.
0: Broomfield, which is also dealing with the question of a moratorium. Let's put the focus back on
1: this building, the state capitol. You've given
0: lawmakers until the end of March to agree on how to get more money for transportation and infrastructure. Republicans and Democrats agree transportation funding is a top priority, but they haven't found a way to fund it yet. Why are you
1: laying back and letting lawmakers figure this out? Why why not take initiative in the debate? What do you mean by take it? You mean go out and hold a press conference and tell them what they should do?
0: Um, You think
1: that would work? Tell me the truth, Ryan. Well, I'm not sure that that that's exactly
0: what I had in mind. But what would you suggest? maybe this is happening, you can tell me, but sitting down directly with lawmakers and Uh,
1: saying, let's figure this out at this table. I am sitting down directly with lawmakers saying, let's figure this out at this table. It's not this table, but sometimes it's this table. Here in your office.
0: You know, one issue that Republicans have raised is that any new source of transportation funding be uh, revenue neutral, which means that if you're going to increase a tax on Coloradans, for instance, to pay for roads, infrastructure, another tax should be lowered
1: uh, in concert with that. Where is that in negotiations? I'm open to discuss anything, but I don't see how this helps, right? If if we're going to lower one source of revenue so that we can add a new source of revenue and we end up with the same amount of money, why aren't we going ahead and using the first source of revenue to build the roads and the infrastructure we need? Well, I think Republicans want some sort of trade-off. I mean, I am, and I've said this on your show. I've said it you know, Tom, blue in the face. I'm agnostic. I don't care where the revenue comes from or what the trade-off is. We need a certain amount of money, and it's many hundreds of millions of dollars, to build the infrastructure that this state needs to grow. And as you go and look at our competing states, right, Utah is the one I always use as an example. They're spending four times as much money on transportation infrastructure expansion as we are. And they have half the population. So that's a, an 8x differential, This sounds a bit like a a deal breaker with Republicans. Oh, I think you just sit down and listen hard to what the issue—I think it— That didn't work so well for the hospital provider fee, (laughs) which was another funding question you had. Hope springs eternal, Ryan. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. I think we go forward and listen as hard as we can. And one of the things they said is that, well, we need savings in healthcare. Well, you know, we're beginning to see the per-person increase in Medicaid was almost flat this year. We've got real savings. So I'm trying to figure out how big is that number? Can we put $50 million of health care savings into this mix? Some of our uh, general fund money that we've been using in transportation for maintenance. Is there some ways we can do that more efficiently and save, let's say, $50 million from highway maintenance? In other words, it limits, we don't have to raise new revenues as much as we would otherwise. We're trying to do everything we can to get to a compromise where we're actually hearing what their concerns are and trying to the best of our ability to respond. I really think more than anything, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. This is about the future of the state of Colorado. I mean, Republicans, Democrats have always, we've all believed that you've got to be able to build the infrastructure to satisfy the needs of a a growing economy. Governor, thank you for being with us again. Always a treat.
0: Democrat John Hickenlooper is governor of Colorado. We speak with him regularly at the state capitol. By the way, we have invited Colorado's attorney general, Cynthia Kaufman, to join us to get more of her sp- her perspective, that is, on the Boulder County lawsuit and other legal issues. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <music> Mourning the Loss of a Loved One and Mourning for the Planet are themes of the new play Two Degrees by playwright Tira Palmquist. She workshopped the script in Denver during last year's Colorado New Play Summit, and as part of this year's summit, the show gets its world premiere. Two Degrees follows Emma Phelps, a paleoclimatologist who studies ice cores in Greenland, and the playwrights uh, joins me from Irvine, California, where she lives. Tara, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much.
0: I understand the idea for this came out of uh, a challenge a friend made. What was that?
2: <laughs> yeah, she challenged me to write better roles for women over 45. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> At the time, uh, she was about 45. We were having drinks in San Francisco, and she said, You know, it really is terrible. Being an actress of a certain age, being at the height of my abilities and seeing the roles kind of dry up. Um, Every other audition she would see, there would be no parts for her. Um, And so she said to me, hey, the next play you write, you better write a part for a woman my age. And I said, absolutely, I'm going to do that. Um, And it took me a while to figure out what the play would be. Um, and did you write it with was this, really...
0: this particular friend in mind as the actress, or was the was the challenge a bit more flexible than that?
2: It was a bit more flexible than that. Certainly, as I was, as I was beginning to write the play, her voice was in my head. But I was also really thinking about what is the best way to provide an opportunity for an actress. What kind of parts do we want to see on stage? What kind of stories do we want to see? And if, and if we only see a certain number of stories about a certain kind of people, then I think that that has a ripple effect mm. in the theater and in our lives. So I was thinking about it as a broader challenge of what kind of great, exciting part can I write that is reflective of what women can do over 45
0: and you came up with a lead character who is a climate scientist. How did that occur to you?
2: That, <clears throat> I'm sorry that I'm so, I'm having morning voice, apparently. Well, that's okay. Um, I, I welcome the frog in your throat, <clears> throat> as well as you. <laughs> Why, thank you. I would say that the impetus to have a climate scientist <clears throat> really came from my distress about reading about climate change in the news um, I'm not a scientist. I'm a writer. I'm a teacher. But reading a lot about climate change certainly was in the back of my head as I began this play. And it just occurred to me, well, of course, I should make this this lead character a, a scientist. And climate science being a, an important issue, um, that's where the... Uh, impulse to make her a paleoclimatologist began.
0: So to look at the history of the world through ice cores and understand climate and how it has changed. So her name is Emma Phelps, and uh, she goes to Washington to testify before a congressional committee about climate change legislation. And her arrival in D.C. coincides with the first anniversary of her husband's death. What yeah. did, what did you want to achieve with that sort of overlap of events?
2: The overlap occurred to me when I was reading about <clears throat> when we study climate change and we study what is happening now, those things that happen now are a result of decisions that made decades or hundreds of years before. And... So, looking at the way one grieves for someone and how one gets over the death of a spouse, I was paralleling the eventual, uh, the eventual uh, grief that results as uh, after the death of a, of a loved one, what one learns about a loved one, perhaps after the fact. This parallel structure is both about the, uh, the way grief influences our lives, the way grief works through us, but also looking at the way we have to come to grips with our own choices with our lives, both in terms of climate change and in terms of our personal uh, trajectories. So while Emma is grieving for the planet, she's also grieving for her spouse but some of some advice she gets from another character in the play is that hey if you can't go back and change the mistakes of your past but you can change you now you can make different decisions about how you move forward and you can make different decisions about how you live your life and this advice applies both to Emma personally but also applies to us in terms of how we decide to make policy or make different choices about uh, ameliorating uh, our effects of climate change.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with playwright (coughs) Kira Palmquist, who has written Two Degrees. It is a play that was workshopped uh, last year at Colorado's New Play Summit and is now fully formed and makes its world premiere uh, in Colorado uh, through next month. So I understand you did some extensive research for this play about climate change, reading up on the science and politics Um You also took a a CAST field trip to INSTAR and (laughs) NCAR in Boulder. These are two research centers focused on climate science. And you had a chance to speak with a few of those scientists. Uh, What was the biggest takeaway you had from that
2: experience? The biggest takeaway that I took was, number one, that Emma is very um, reluctant to be testifying in Washington. And when I heard one of the other scientists, Marika, um, express that same opinion, I felt vindicated in my choice to have Emma, um, reluctant, but also it it clarified for me this divide between politics and science. Um, it, while we can certainly say that many politicians today don't necessarily trust or love science, um, I think that the the same is true for the scientific community. There's a certain amount of distrust and fear of the, the political climate now. Um, and that was a huge takeaway for me. Uh, and I think that's something we've got to bridge. If we're going to build better policy, then I think politicians need to be better versed in science. And I think scientists need to step up and run for office.
0: Mm. And you mentioned Marika. This is Marika Holland, I believe, at NCAR. Yes. Uh, I also understand the research included looking into the mining industry.
2: Yeah. Uh, one of the characters, Clay Simpson, is a representative for uh, a mining consortium, a mineral exploration company. Um, and that came about partially because I didn't want the play to be just um, one-sided, to only provide one side of the issue. This is a complicated issue, and I know that there are a lot of business concerns, energy concerns that influence our policy. But I wanted to have an opportunity to to see both sides of the issue but also um i wanted to have an opportunity to show that you don't need to uh there're no angels and demons in this in this story um everybody is a very fraught complicated character that includes emma that includes clay and and i wanted to have a more diverse perspective on the issue um when I, I was writing Clay, it was—yeah, go ahead. I wonder
0: if your friend who, who wanted you to write a, a powerful role for a woman over 40, if she thinks you, you succeeded.
2: Well, she's got the script. <laughs> um, I, I don't think she's had an opportunity to, uh, to perform it or do a reading of it yet. Um, I would really hope that she would because she'd hmm. be dynamite in it. Do
0: you think that this play 2 degrees <laughs> is is I would say I would offer you a glass of water but you're in Irvine, California and we're here in, in Metro Denver.
2: <laughs> I've uh, got water right here. Okay.
0: Do do you think this is advocacy the play 2 degrees?
2: I think it's hard to do theater and not do advocacy. On the other hand, I don't think that theater is a policy making endeavor. My goal in writing the play was to provide a human side of the story and to perhaps change people's minds not necessarily about the science but about their place in this story. Um, For me, the political is personal and the personal is political
0: That is playwright, Tira. Oh, I'm so sorry. (coughs) No, go ahead. We've just run out of time. So, Tira, thank you so much for yours.
2: Well, thank you very much. And thanks for, for having me on the show this morning.
0: Playwright Tira Palmquist, the Denver Center presents the world premiere of her play Two Degrees through March 12th. Coming up, a bowl of ethics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm going to put you on the spot with a couple of ethical dilemmas. Should a bartender have the right to refuse a pregnant woman a drink? Should colleges pay their athletes? Those are just two of the questions that students from the Colorado School of Mines have been contemplating. This weekend, they'll compete in the National College Ethics Bowl. Hannah Grover is on the team. She's a senior at Mines, and Hannah, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks. I'm so happy to be here.
0: You received 15 ethical dilemmas a few weeks ago, any of which could be chosen at this competition. Mm -hmm. And one of them is indeed called Drinking for Two. So tell us a little bit more about it.
3: Okay. So, for that case, um, basically what happens is we all get case studies. And in that one, they give the situation where there's maybe a pregnant woman at a bar, and the bartender is unsure, should I be able to serve them? Am I required to serve them? How do I make this ethical judgment? And what framework do I use? And so we kind of are tasked with maybe providing some sort of answer to that.
0: And you have to be ready to argue, I think, either side, potentially.
3: So, yeah, it's a little bit different from debate in that you're not given a for or against. You come in and you're given a much more like open-ended question. And you form... um, whatever argument and best response to that question. And so it's it's not necessarily for or against like a typical debate.
0: I see. And so uh, when you compete, it might be that uh, both teams come to a similar conclusion, but you're judged on whether you're... Uh, conclusion is better argued or better right. presented.
3: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, oftentimes we'll even come to similar sorts of conclusions. But it's like, did you consider this angle or what about how it affects this party or the stakeholder um, is like a big word that we use. Um, and so how clear is your argument? Yeah, exactly. And you
0: will be grilled by the judges. So you make a presentation <laughs> yeah. and then they try to tear it apart.
3: <laughs> um, yeah. You know, they, they do their best to be helpful as much as they can, but they're definitely, you know, poking Holes and saying like, here's where we saw maybe a flaw, and how can you explain that? Or how would this this argument hold up in this situation? You know, they try and push it until your argument kind of falls apart.
0: Okay, um, I have some experience with that. So, what are your thoughts on that that conundrum of a pregnant woman walking into a bar and asking for a drink?
3: Right. So, um, you know, as a, as a team, we all kind of come to these conclusions, and we have to explore these. Um, These cases from lots of angles and what we came to and and the girl in charge of it is Dana Steiner. She came to the decision uh, and we did as a team that um, you can't discriminate based on someone's health status also being pregnant and so as a bartender you don't have the right to infringe on someone else's autonomy and so autonomy is a big word that we use as well huh. um, because
0: what if that person had liver disease which you might not be able to see would you have an obligation then
3: right exactly or th- that person could be an alcoholic and you're enabling some sort of um uh bad behavior but you don't know you know we use the phrase your autonomy extends as far as your nose and so um you only able to um, make decisions or take actions that affect yourself and don't infringe on someone else's ability to make choices for themselves. Mm -hmm.
0: But would that bartender have some responsibility if that baby were born with fetal alcohol syndrome?
3: Um, so our our stance is no. I mean, it's tough, right? Because mm. maybe they would feel some sort of guilt. Um, but the other way we looked at it is if a, if a woman is pregnant and she's at a bar drinking, it's it's very likely that she's probably drinking elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, one drink isn't going to do anything. And there's also no, uh, so far, no conclusive scientific evidence on how much alcohol um, leads to any or what uh, range of defects in, in a child. So you know, a glass of wine, not going to have total adverse effects. Mm. If you're drinking 10 drinks a day, bad things are probably going to happen. And but so... the bartender
0: can't necessarily know right. that. exactly. So uh, you've clearly thought this through. And again, you have to do this for like a dozen ethical dilemmas. Right. Um, are there practice sessions? Do you get together to sort of rehearse
3: yeah, so so w- when the cases came out, we were actually on winter break still, and so we did a lot of research on our own. We split the cases up, so there's three of us that present. It's myself, Dana Steiner, and Parker Bolstad, and um, we, and then the other three team members, uh, Kirsten Fong, Azriel Wolf, and Ian Kramer, all did research. We came together right when school started, um, and we meet Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, for about two and a half hours in the evening.
0: We're speaking with Hannah Grover. She's a senior majoring in engineering physics at Colorado School of Mines in Golden. And uh, she and her teammates, whom she mentioned, will compete in the National Intercollegiate Ethics Bowl this Sunday. It's in Dallas. And uh, give us an example of another ethical question that you are prepared to answer, to Um. argue
3: yeah so so, one of the cases that um I have that I'm really passionate about um it's called Trigger Happy. They like to be really creative with their names, and it's actually about using trigger warnings on campus. Uh, you know there's been a huge debate um among uh, faculty on campuses, administration, and just like the general public on are we coddling our students? You'll hear that a lot like the coddled millennials mm. um and and so this case is saying is providing trigger warnings, um, coddling our students. Are we preventing intellectual growth, challenging our students? Um, That is to
0: say, I'm not sure what a trigger warning is. So that's when a professor says, hey, guys, Mm -hmm. what I'm about to talk about or lecture about or teach could set you off.
3: So, yeah, typically how it starts, it actually started on the Internet. And it was like, hey, there's graphic content. If if you've experienced trauma, you may want to be careful about what you're about to view. Mm. So what it takes form in... Uh, How it should take form in college campuses is maybe on a syllabus saying, on this day, we're going to be talking about war. Maybe we'll watch a graphic video or this book has sexual violence in it. If you've had traumas, you know, just make sure you're prepared. Um, It's not to allow people to get out of it at all.
0: I see. And so the question is, uh, is this the right thing to do by students or does it actually do a kind of educational disservice? Where do you where do you land?
3: Right. We actually I land on the side of it's it's a very. Positive courtesy if done well, right? It's a warning to students who've experienced trauma. Um, a lot of people don't have an experienced trauma, so it's hard to relate to, but hmm. people actually suffer really adverse effects when they're uh, re exposed to things that may trigger um, their traumatic experiences. We can think of veterans, um, so, scenes of war could trigger really traumatic. Uh, memories. So
0: well used and maybe narrowly tailored. You hope to get a master's after this and become a nuclear engineer. Mm -hmm. Why the ethics bowl?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I was actually in the ethics class uh, last year with Sandy Woodson, who's one of our coaches. And I thought it was really interesting. It was fun to talk about these, you know, sort of deep ethical issues. Um, How can we make best decisions in the world? Um, And I wanted to challenge myself and make sure that I'm keeping my mind open um, as I move through the world and, and considering all kinds of viewpoints and making the best decisions that I can.
0: Which relates to science as much yeah. as any other field, I oh, suppose.
3: Absolutely. I think ethics is probably under-considered in science and engineering. It's very important and very relevant, and I, and I hope that to see like more ethics um, sort of folded into engineering and science education as well.
0: Well, it's nice to meet you. Good luck this weekend.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Hannah Grover is a senior majoring in engineering physics at Mines in Golden. She and her teammates will compete in the National Intercollegiate Ethics Bowl this Sunday in Dallas. She has an infectious smile, velvety skin, smoky eyes, and several hundred thousand YouTube followers who seek her beauty tips.
4: Hi, guys. Okay, wow. Um, okay, we'll just get into it. So I already moisturized my skin. I used this skin saver. I don't know why I put it back in the box. I'm obsessed with Dr. Jart.
0: Nora Afia uh, also I'm wears a hijab. Recently. In fact, the Colorado native is the first woman to appear in a cover girl ad wearing a hijab, and she's with me. Welcome to the program, Nora.
4: Thank you so much for having me. You
0: <laughs> started on YouTube demonstrating how to apply makeup. Uh, what prompted you to start doing those videos?
4: So I had just um, had my daughter, and I was breastfeeding full-time. So I would watch a ton of YouTube videos, and what's amazing about YouTube is you can find people that are super relatable. It's just like watching TV, but people that are super relatable. So I would look for girls wearing the hijab, and I was more into the makeup side of YouTube tutorials, and I didn't see very many Muslim girls wearing hijab that started doing that, and so I thought I'd just, like, fill a void
0: When you describe people as relatable on YouTube, I think what you're saying is you were hungry to see people who looked like you.
4: Yeah, definitely.
0: Why do you think that there was a dearth, a lack of people wearing hijab, doing makeup? Is there an inherent tension there? Because I think of the hijab as as something that adds modesty and makeup is something that doesn't necessarily. necessarily.
4: Yeah. So um, there was. I feel like people were kind of afraid to do and to put themselves out there.
0: You're 24, you were married at 18, have a daughter who's five, and you wore a hijab while going to school in Aurora. How did you feel about wearing it then?
4: Um, I grew up pretty insecure about it because I have a twin sister, and I started wearing the hijab before her. And like our whole life, we kind of did everything at the same time, you know? And then all of a sudden, I just started in the middle of the school year, and I just had to wear it. So it was very different for me, and I was... I don't think—at the time I was in middle school, so I don't remember any other girls wearing it. I was, like, one of the first.
0: So Why did you choose to wear it?
4: Um, like, I wouldn't necessarily say I made that choice. You know, it's just something you do when you when you get your menses. As a young girl, you're supposed to wear a scarf it's just like anybody else. If they take their kids to church, that's what they do.
0: This was if, understood then in your family. Yeah. What did kids say about the hijab at school?
4: Um— I feel like girls didn't give me such um, a hard of a time as boys did. Really? Yeah, boys were the ones that picked on me the most. In, in, in what way? What would they say? Oh, I don't really remember. I don't. They just I, I just remember being treated completely different.
0: Did you understand then why you were wearing it? Did it make sense to you or did it feel kind of foisted upon you?
4: I mean, looking back now, I understand why I wore it. But at the time, I didn't.
0: Why do you wear it today?
4: Um, Because I see the beauty behind it. It, You know, it really empowers me as a woman and makes other people look at me for who I am and, you know, listens to the words that come out of my mouth instead of just judging me from my appearance.
0: Are both your parents Muslim? Yes. Tell us about them.
4: Um, So my dad's Moroccan. Um, He came here, I think, when he was like 18 or 19, like really young. And my mom is Swiss-German-Lebanese, but she was raised... Her dad's a Christian-Lebanese, but she actually converted before she met my dad.
0: I want to talk more about this CoverGirl gig. Yeah. you had done some smaller campaigns for different kinds of makeup, I yeah. think. Yeah. Did you apply for the, the CoverGirl thing, or did they come calling?
4: <laughs> they came calling. <laughs> what
0: was that like? How did you find out?
4: It was amazing. Um, I got an email, and it was uh, from... The casting agency that was working directly with them. And they said, our client is really interested in using you in our upcoming campaign. And they said, they mentioned something about a commercial, but even up until when I got there, I didn't realize it was like as big as it is.
0: So I think it was a mascara ad, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And how was it to shoot the ad?
4: It was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was very, a little nervous for me because, you know, when I film my videos, I'm in a room by myself and it's just me and the camera. I can stop and do whatever. But this was me in front of like a set, uh, a crew of like, <laughs> at the time, I, it was like 20 men to me. You know, there's women there too, but I just <laughs> see men. Like <laughs> So it was kind of awkward at first, but... Um, it was a lot of fun. You know, they, they put on my music to kind of like, you know, let me loosen up.
0: How do your parents feel about the makeup side of this and the the now much more public side of this?
4: Um. So the makeup side, I, in the beginning, like when I had just started out, yeah. I think it made them kind of nervous. But they realized that I'm not doing it to like parade myself. You know, it's just... Why it's, are you doing it? It's helped me find myself.
0: That is Nora Afia of Denver, the first woman to appear in a CoverGirl campaign wearing hijab. We first spoke in November. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. And we are CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.